Hello and welcome to the Cranogcast. Uh, my name's Rich, I'm the Community Archaeologist here at the Scottish Cranog Centre and today's episode we're going to be sitting down with Jason who is a fantastic textile interpreter here at the Scottish Cranog Centre. Um, we're actually just going to talk about the, the previous projects that have been carried out um, and all the work that, that Jason's been doing to better understand the textile. Um, really what, what we're going to do is we're just going to discuss in in quite a lot of detail as you'll hear um a single artifact and what that can tell us um and i think it's good because it opens up and celebrates the uncertainty of prehistory uh, as a study um archaeology can come across very directive and, and quite final in its interpretation but in fact the power of prehistory is that it's it's not like that <laughs> So we're sat here with Jason Oliver, who is, well, Jason, if you'd like to introduce yourself, that's probably the best time to do it. Yeah, so my name's Jason. I have many roles at the Cranach, do lots of different things. Um, but uh, for this particular interview, I'm going to be talking about an experimental archaeological process and projects that started last year um, to do with a reconstruction of our precious fragment, a piece of textile from two and a half thousand years ago. Wonderful. Um, so just to catch everybody up, we have done and we spoke um, previously with Fran, who is our curator here at the Scratch Crack Centre, and she has done a bit about the the pottery project, which is um, obviously starting this year and will be running through until hopefully the next eighteen months. Yeah. Um, and basically, this is a, it's a continuation of um, projects that we do at the Scottish Crack Centre, where we go through our collection. We systematically choose out all the individual items that we want to look at for the next 12 months, 18 months, whatever it might be. Um, and we, we kind of celebrate the, the learning around it and, and connect everything we do in terms of events and stuff. So that's this one that's starting. But last year, um, we did a fantastic project uh, specifically focused around our textile. Um, and Jason was an integral part of the team understanding that process uh, mostly because he is now a, a, an experimental archaeologist is that the best way to describe you i suppose so no it's gone in that direction yeah it wasn't intended but he's ended up no, doing... but I, I would say that's an accurate description yeah, <laughs> yeah it's <a> very accurate <laughs> description. no so uh, jason basically came came to the crowd center maybe not wanting to knowing or wanting to do anything experimental archaeology driven but the inspiration of the collection has kind of probably pushed him more to that direction as time's gone on. Yeah. So, Jason, if you would just like to take us through, really, um, and, and let everybody know what what the textile fragment is, um, I'll shut up and let you go on about that. So, Okay. So, the textile fragment is a 2,500-year-old um, beautiful piece of textile that was found at the bottom of the lock um, and survived intact. Um, it is about two inches long, maybe an inch wide. It is very, very finely woven. It is made out of wool, and the uh, the fragments it's woven from, the tiny pieces of wool, are probably about double the width of a human hair. So the uh, tiny fragment, if you look at it, you can see, I'm looking at it right now, you can see a diagonal line that runs up the textile. So this tells us 
that it, it is certain kind of weave that we didn't think existed in Scotland or indeed actually the British Isles until the 10th century AD when we found it on some thicker woven wool. So that's why this textile is impressive. It's caused us to rethink what we know about the production techniques of textile going way, way back in time. Um, it looks almost like silk um, and we have had it analysed um, specifically because we didn't think this kind of twill existed in Scotland prior to the 10th century AD and it has turned out to have a date of 390 and it is woven in what is called a 2-1 twill and on the loom that means that the horizontal thread goes over 2 under 1 over 2 under 1 and then it repeats itself on the next line but moves along one if that makes sense and that's how you get the diagonal line so that yeah. is a description of the textile yeah so the i mean the the, the textile fragment just as, as jason's having a quick look at it to kind of give him recount himself and give himself a bit of inspiration about, about what it is the the i think it's safe to say that the idea of the project was to take the textile and using team and the knowledge that we have yeah. not just within the team from the outside the organization yeah. to kind of see if we can and, and how we do reconstruct that textile yeah. you know to, to create a, a replica or, or yeah uh, maybe a replica is the wrong word you're the experimental archaeologist you know reconstruction um, but yeah. A, yeah, a reconstruction of mm. the, of the yeah. textile too so um just really uh, jason if you just want to go through kind of your i think what's from myself because i'm 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 incredibly lucky to have seen this go on but yeah. it'd be really good for you to explain okay. the actual thought process and, and yeah. the process that you've gone through around the textile okay. if you can yeah so um we the the first step with this textile is to get the date on it just to make sure that it's from this particular time period mm -hmm. that was working with dr susanna harris at the university of glasgow um, Dr. Susanna Harris then interpreted the textile. So we have academic theory. We've got the academia. So experimental archaeology works on the borders of academia. So we take the interpretation. We have a detailed understanding of how it was spun, which direction the wall was spun in, because it's, people have looked under a microscope. It's stuff that we cannot see with a naked eye. When we have all that data, we will then try and recreate that. This has been going on before the textile project started. We have been learning how to spin wool over the last four years. We can now get it to the fineness of this textile. So that is the first step. The next step was to test different kinds of looms. Um, we have one called a warp-weighted loom, and we have stones with holes in, in the museum. And a warp-weighted loom, if you can imagine, a big rectangle of wood, the threads are hanging down, and the stones are attached to the bottom. We managed to get to the point where we don't think that's what the stones are for. Maybe clay weights at the bottom. You can recreate it. We have so now moved on to... Yeah, what, sorry. You've, what you've done is you've basically taken the, the evidence that we had for a loom in our collection. Yeah. The, uh, the oak bank cranog. We obviously had the textile, but as I say about many other pieces, we have the finished product, but that doesn't necessarily tell us, you know, that they made it themselves. Yeah. But what we have at the cranog is the, the stones with holes in so are you saying that's the inspiration for the warp weighted loom it's just those stones with holes but in. that's it that's it that's the inspiration um and 
I think interpretation, you can speak to maybe five different archaeologists and you're going to get five different answers depending on where they're coming from. Um, so that was the inspiration. It was like, well, how was this made? And the question was, could it be made on that loom? And we are not discounting that. But could these stones be used for weights on a loom? And our experience through testing showed that the stones would all need to be exactly the same weight because otherwise they will be pulling the wall down differently and you're going to start to get very wavy lines. And we don't see that on our textile. We don't see that on our textile, no. but we do see it on our what weighted loom textile. Yeah. And that wasn't necessarily because we didn't know how to use the loom, because we had loom specialists come in mm -hmm. to help. It is not discounting it, but it is more than likely it has been woven on a two-beam loom. So the difference between a warp weight and a two-beam loom, two-beam loom has a beam at the top and a beam at the bottom, and the wool is wrapped over and round and round and round and round, round, and you weave, and eventually you weave a tube. We spoke to another academic um, down at the University of York, and she said that the 2112 sits better on a two-beam loom. So we, so we came to the same conclusion independently of one another, mm -hmm. But there might have been another kind of loom that we're not aware of, but we're going with the evidence of different kinds of looms that we know were used at that time. It sits far better. So that means we are a step nearer to learning about how the textile was made. The next step, because we've been using modern day weaving wool, because we didn't want to have too many variables, because we know what the modern day weaving wool is going to do, we know that it's going to stretch, it's all going to act in the same way, etc., etc., etc. And that was to work out how to weave the actual twill. The next step in the process will be to remove the next modern thing, which will be the wool, the modern wool. So we will spin all our own wool. Now we feel confident enough. We've been practicing it for four years. And we will use the two-beam loom and use our own spun wool. And then again, that takes us a step nearer to understanding the textile. When we have done that, we will come back and we will look at Susanna Harris's, Susanna Harris's interpretation again, yeah. scrutinise the textile. Yeah. You're always comparing any experiment back to the collection, otherwise it's just wishful thinking. Mm -hmm. It's constantly back to this. Mm -hmm. um, the difficulty with um, comparing it back to this is that you would think a piece of textile has shrunk in the peat at the bottom of the lock and in the clay, and through the drying process, it's gone as part of the conservation. It has actually expanded by between 5 and 7%. So the textile initially was even smaller and finally, more finely spun than this textile so object. The threads that you're actually looking at on the textile are enlarged as to what they're they enlarged. Were. So, in fact, when we look at it and we're amazed by how thin it is, it was even thinner yeah. two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. So, our main issue is. If you have threads or yarn that are spun that finely and they've expanded, the hand-spun wool is going to be stretched over a two-beam loom. They need to be pulled really tight. The tension needs to be. It needs to be. It needs to be. The tension. It needs to be very taut. And the problem could be because hand-spun wool will stretch. It sticks together because of the lanolin. It doesn't separate out properly. So that's going to be a next level of understanding, developing technical ability, and again, upskilling to the level of the people in the Iron Age. The more we do this, 
the more I feel that we are moving away from their level of skill. They, they, it, it's so incredible. And I think people have this perception of people in the Iron Age walking around maybe with skins and, you know, looking very what people would call primitive. And actually, I would say that this is extremely complex, um, technologically advanced, if you like, piece of textile. I've been, I've, I've always said, and you've probably heard me going on about this at, at the Crown Hog as well, is that, you know, we, we define the ages because it's it's easy and it's it works nicely and it boxes off well. You know, we say Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age, but actually, what we've inherently done there, and I was chatting to some businesses about this today, um, is we're actually we're, we're overplaying the importance of one skill, and that one skill is metalworking. Hmm. Stone goes to bronze, bronze goes to iron. That's the most important thing. That's how we define it. But actually, and and museums should be relevant and we should stay relevant. So I'll use this as the relevant example on the 27th of March as we're recording this, that the Ukrainian crisis had just kicked off as it was. Mm. The first thing they asked for for support, mm. blankets and clothes. Yeah. Textiles that keep you warm. The ability, the difference between... so. You explained very briefly, I'm sure you will in a minute, the difference between, you know, a, a, a tabby weave or a, or a very simple woven mm. piece of cloth and what we've got in front of us here, which is the 212 weave, is the 212 weave is strong, it's warm, mm. but it's also, because of the diagonal pattern, it's mm. more maybe more able to, to bend. It's a better standard cloth. Mm. Two and a half thousand years ago, if I'm going up the side of a mountain in freezing cold temperatures, do I want a fancy axe or do mm. I want a warm clog and tunic? Mm. one always comes first and we don't we never ever i think especially in prehistory give enough credence to the skill of the people that were the weavers the textile workers they have a lifeline with the work that they do yeah not to get too much on my soapbox but i think it's something that uh, from my watching the skill that jason has developed and, and understood and the, the time that's gone into that i think it's just it's a massively undervalued skill I think, I, think, to say. I, I think that thing about dividing things into Stone Age, Bronze Age, Iron Age I think it's a very old perspective that comes from the 1800s where people were defined by their tools mm. they weren't defined by who they are mm. and what I'm interested in and what I've become more interested in over time is the material culture of people mm. what they left behind, what they kept and you start to get a sense of who the people were and who the people were in their community and the skills that they have. It doesn't matter to me what the tools are they are using. In the same way, I don't define you by the fact you use a kitchen knife. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I don't define you like that. It's the material culture. We connect to the people. And you're right. Clothes are the first thing that you need um, You know, before you do anything else. It's the first thing you're going to do in the day is you're going to put clothes on. Um, and as you say about, you know, in Ukraine, people need blankets because they need to keep warm. It's the, one of the basic human needs that we have. I think the fascinating thing about this textile is people are not making, people have not made this textile just to keep warm. There is innovation within the textile. It makes a stronger textile than a tabby weave, which is just under, over, under, over. It's stronger, but it's very, very finely woven. We're in Scotland. Mm -hmm. The temperature was lower than it was. It is now. Mm -hmm. The temperature was wetter than it is now. Mm -hmm. What was his textile for? 
what help is this going to be if you are going out up a mountain? We know, for example, that we have cloudberry seeds on all of the crannogs. That means that at some point people are going up into the hills, they're going 300 feet up at some point during the year. When you go up, you get colder. What was this textile for? What was it part of? So that's when we start to think about the people rather than the tools they're defined by. I think you kind of twig something in, in with what you mentioned before. I don't want to get too much into this because we, we talk about textile, but it is actually very, very relevant to textile. When you said that, that you know, tools don't define people, but actually today you would, you would very easily define somebody or understand somebody or somebody would express their identity through the clothes they wear. Yeah. Two and a half thousand years ago, we're assuming that that isn't in place. We're actually, and I'm just looking at the textile now, and you can explain, Jason, you'll be back to explain a little bit about this, but we have alternate colours. This yeah. isn't just one single colour, it's not just the, the wall colour. No. So I, I think the other innovation that you start to see at the end of the Bronze Age, beginning of the Iron Age, is colour. So at the end of the Bronze Age, people are taking advantage of the different coloured fleeces. So you have white, you have grey, you have brown, and you have black. People were specifically breeding white fleeces because you could dye them, you could change the colour of them. So there's natural pigmentation that they are taking advantage of. So again, this is people that are concerned with how they look. And when you look back in prehistory, the people were exactly the same as us. We'd recognise them, we'd recognise the bossy one, we'd recognise the quiet one, the one that drank too much, whatever, the one that was kind of concerned with how it was coming across... Um, you know, the, the very studious one. We would recognise these people. They are exactly the same as I say, just had different resources available to them. So having a very fine piece of textile may have had some kind of language that's embedded into it. Even if the language is, look at me, I look good. There is no necessity to have colour in your clothing. You are, you are considering the way that you are appearing to other people, basically. And I think that also is picked up with the 212. 212, different colours, and um, you can see the influence across Europe. You start to see the beginning of the Iron Age as an explosion of colours in wool, and that's because people are learning new techniques. Um, maybe there's a sense of one-upmanship, who knows? But there we are, the textile exists. That's all the information we have. This textile exists. Mm -hmm. That is it. It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful discussion topic, isn't it? It's, it's, it's great to be able to actually have it in front of us and just go... Ooh, yeah. What does this tell us? Brilliant piece. So, um, carrying on from that, Jace, uh, the the work you're currently doing now. Yeah. Now, what if you want to explain to what it yeah. is that you're currently doing around around your looms? Okay. So we have been working with Ashley Slater, who is a master weaver from Blair Gary, who has again coming in with his perspective, which is actually really useful because I think experimentally you get to a point where you reach, I don't know how to do this because it's a humbling experience. You have to realise your limits and your limitations. So you have to tap into expert help. So Ashley um, looked at this textile and kind of when I said we were going to do it on a two-beam loom and he looked at the fineness of it, you know, said that this was going to be probably quite tricky to do. So that's why we're going to collaborate He's coming at it from a modern weaving perspective. I'm coming at it from understanding this piece of textile. And, the, you know, somewhere in the middle of this, this knowledge will appear. It becomes a collaboration. 
Um, he also said that, you know, maybe he wasn't sure if he was a tunic, maybe it could be something else, maybe a decorative part of the tunic. Again, we'll never know that. We're, all we know is we've got this textile. So in, in terms of what we're doing with the loom, um, the loom that we have at the moment, we've sorted out the two, uh, two on twelve. Everybody that comes around on a tour will weave into the textile. Mm -hmm. So this textile has become a social piece of fabric. Um, no one owns it. It's owned by everybody that has touched that loom, from a little kid that's come in and played with it all and chucked it in, through to modern-day weavers, through people on the immersive workshops, through professional weavers, through to amateur weavers. Anybody that wants to have a go, I'll show them how to do it. It's set up simply, and people can use it. And slowly, this piece of textile is evolving. It is a lot slower than it would have been in the Iron Age because people are weaving on it maybe every 15 minutes. Um, but it doesn't matter. And that becomes people, the visitors, piece of textile. That's what it does. So we have to care for it in that context. The next bit, the experimental bit, which is bringing us a bit, a bit nearer to the, to the textile, is, as I said, we're going to be building another loom. And although the textile project was only meant to be running for a year, I always had it in my head, right, I know where this is going. It's going to be at least three years to get to the point where we can weave it. And I would estimate from here, I, I think it's going to continue from the current site over to Dalherb, and when we get the new textile area, we could have three or four different kinds of looms trying to recreate this. I don't see this project finishing because the more you learn, the more you have to experiment. It's as simple as that. So that, that, that's how it's happening. So at, at Dalherb, as I said, we'll have more looms, we'll become more skilled, we'll be in contact with more weavers, and we'll just develop over time. And hopefully that will lead us to better interpretation of this textile. Brilliant, thank you. Wonderful. Well, um, thank you very much. I think, I suppose the last question, just to, to round it off, I'm going to ask you, Jason, is what do you think the most important thing that this textile tells us about the past is, about the people? If you had to choose one, what's the most important thing it tells us about the past? Um, I think that people were creative. People were creative. They were innovating. Um, they were also um, very. Uh, I, I think there was a, a. They had a sense of aesthetics that maybe we don't uh, fully comprehend. Agree. That was three things. Sorry. <laughs> I expect nothing less. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, Jason. So that was Jason and uh, chatting about the textile there. Um, I think the thing to say is that here at the Scottish Crown Centre, those conversations that we're having, um, they're always increasing and, and strengthening our interpretation of, of the Iron Age and prehistory. But these aren't just conversations that we have, you know, amongst ourselves, um, as was alluded to in, in, in the podcast today. These conversations are had with visitors um, and, and it's well worth coming to visit us because, again... This is, this is what we do. We, we interpret the life of the people that lived on Cranachs two and a half thousand years ago through, you know, relevant conversations to, to not just uh, the past, but to today as well. 
Um, so the next episode, we're hopefully going to be chatting again to Graham, who's going to be hopefully telling us a few more stories. Um, and we have in the pipeline as well, Ticker returning and to catch us up on the next workshop that we're going to be doing around the pottery project, uh, which I believe is going to be happening the next week as well. Um, so uh, thank you for listening.